Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The information contained on this platform represents the opinion of the host and shall not be understood, construed as, or a substitute for medical or health advice. Please see a health professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. It's the Black Health 365 podcast, and we are here to make sure you look good on the outside and even better on the inside. After all, looking good, feeling good, and living a healthy lifestyle 365 days of the year should be a daily choice. Here at the Black Health 365 podcast, we will address the healthcare disparities within the Black community with trusted voices and information to empower a healthy lifestyle. Ain't that right, Britt? I'm talking about mind, body, and soul. Well, greetings and salutations, 365ers. Welcome to another episode, another edition of the Black Health 365 podcast. I am Jackie Page, radio personality, as well as fitness guru, joined by my handsome co-host, I appreciate the introduction, Jackie. What's good, 365ers? It's Britt Daniels, your fit life coach, yogi, and entrepreneur. And as y'all know, this is the Black Health 365, where it is our mission to be champions of truth and change by providing y'all with personalized healthcare information and resources from trusted professionals. As y'all know, we are here to empower the Black community to make healthier choices all year long. Miss Jackie Page, how you feeling? I'm feeling good. And before I bring or introduce our trusted professional today. It is the mock neck for me. You want to talk about it? <laughs> I got a mock neck on. I don't know. I was just feeling a little like Bruce Wayne today. I just had to step out, got the Mala beads on, feeling very centered today. We've been in our zone. So um, <laughs> it's like 150 degrees here in Atlanta. Um, what is, because I just realized you got on sleeves. Like, what is the temperature in DC? It's actually a cooler day, but my apartment, I keep it on like 69 degrees at all times. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Pep call me, but I tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's go ahead and bring in our guest for today. <laughs> 365ers joining us today is Dr. Christopher Newman. Dr. Newman is a neurosurgeon at the Memorial Sloan Ketter- Kettering Cancer Center, specializing in the care of people with primary spinal tumors, cancers uh, that spread to the spine and tumors involving the spinal cord and its nerves. Uh, Dr. Newman, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. It's a great day. (laughs) Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Where exactly? I'm in Atlanta. Britt is in D.C. Where are you located? I'm in New York. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. So I work out of Manhattan, but I commute into Manhattan from Brooklyn. (laughs) What is the temperature like in, in New York? It actually just turned beautiful. So we're now having like solid high 60s in the morning and then like 70s reach into the 80s in the afternoon so it's actually like prime new york weather time do you do you have a long sleeve like brit i do have on long sleeve but it's because i'm wearing a dress shirt so okay <laughs> well let you y'all can judge me i don't care <laughs> <laughs> look man you look good in the mock neck so i'm there's no judgment only envy only envy. <laughs> <laughs> that term women the mock neck i ain't never heard of that 365ers but uh, as y'all know, we like to start these things off with check-ins. Uh, we had a little mini check-in, but let's do a little bit more of a deep dive. Um, doctor, how are you feeling? Like, really, what's going on in your life in this moment right now? What's going on with you? 
No, I feel good. I feel centered. My family's healthy. My family's happy. I just feel blessed to have the people in my life having good health and having good things happen to them. So I'm I'm in a great place and I'm I'm just thankful for it every day. And I think if I had any more, I'd be I'd be greedy. <laughs> and I don't want to be greedy. That's that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Miss Jackie Page, how you feeling? So can I be honest? I mean, I'm always honest, but um, I'm good, but I am starting to realize that I am getting older. So I know um, I did an event over the weekend and I got like, you know how you can go to the store and get your feet like tested in like a custom insole? I did that um, because one of my arches were off. And, and granted, this may not have anything to do with me being old, um, but I was... One of the things that prompted me to do this is because I was getting achy and having pains in the body from working out. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm getting old. Um, so, yeah, just kind of coming to the realization that I am getting old, like the body just isn't it isn't doing what it used to do. Um, and I actually have to take a little bit more care of myself. So I did buy the shoes. Um, I did buy the insoles. And I have had to start wearing my ankle brace again, which I haven't done in like I haven't done that since the pandemic, but my ankle is like, <laughs> ma'am. So yeah, I'm I'm getting older. How are you doing, Britt? <laughs> she says the body's not bodying the way it used to body. <laughs> um, Jackie, I'm I'm doing well today. As we know, um, I definitely have my ups and highs and lows. Um, but today I feel like I'm really walking in my gift, walking in abundance. I've been doing a lot of things for the DC community, um, a lot of big events. Um, a recent one I did was with Howard University. I got to uh, lead a yoga class for all the students coming in and just speak to them about my college experience and how to stay 10 toes down in the face of all these new changes that are going to happen to you. And that was just, it just feels good to really be doing this stuff for the community and just having that type of impact. So many years ago, as we talked about on some early episodes, was just, I never knew I could have this impact just being who I am in a room and the change that can that can have. So it's it's been a blessing. But definitely trying to find my rest here and there. I would have to agree with you on that. I've been uberly busy. The summer is not over. So I'm sure the busy is not going to do anything but continue. I wish I had a clone or um, I could get a few more hours of sleep or just something because it's been a lot on top of inflation, on top of student loans coming back, Man. on top of just being an adult. I'm like... I'm over. I, I want. I want to. I want a refund on being an adult because nobody told me it was gonna be like this. It's funny you say that because uh, we were both talking about an article before we got on um, about adulting. Um, this article says that middle-aged adults are now um, binge drinking and using marijuana at record levels. At record levels. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. And then, you know, students, too, talking about transitioning back into the, the student season for college students, their uptake of marijuana use is, 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 is much higher as well. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's, it's an interesting space. I think coming out of quarantine, I wonder is how much that affects it. You know, uh, I think when people were stuck in quarantine, that definitely changed the landscape of people's self-awareness and what they were dealing with. People starting to numb themselves out. Um, but now we're back going back into normalcy. Um, but are we? Because, you know, we? yeah, because 
and, and, you know, Dr. Newman, throw your two cents in at any point in time. Um, you know, it was an article by the NY Times. But, you know, I'm just interested to, you know, hear your take on it. Um, you know, what was, you know, Britt is saying going back to what is normal, but what is normal isn't what was like our normal was staying in the house and looking crazy. I mean, it's, it's I think it's a, a return to parts of what normal used to be, right? Like when you think about how we ride the subway, for me, how I ride the subway or the people around me on the subway, it's not what it was like right before the pandemic. I was in New York starting in 2019 and there was, you know, perfect, no pandemic, no anything. And it was just a very different vibe. And post pandemic, some things have come back, but not all the same. The, not all the things have really come back. You still see people who are on mass. You still see people who are afraid to fully engage. Or you, you still see some of that reticence. But I think some of the scars that are there from the pandemic in terms of the isolation that happened in terms of the substance abuse that started to rise really during that are still lingering. And I think, you know, the New York Times article brings it out. But also, if you look at I'm getting a, a master's in public health right now, and we actually just spent some time going through the kind of year by year data from kind of New York State in terms of like mortality rates and other things. And you see the actual rises in substance abuse as a more uh, kind of frequent cause of kind of death and adverse events. And I think it fits with what you're saying, where there is this shift towards using substances to kind of cope with the changes that even while we're entering into some kind of a new normal and more permanent normal, I think the scars of how we adapted and how we coped during the pandemic are still there. I would have to agree. I feel like to some extent we are all still a little afraid of what we experience and potentially having to go through that again. Um, you know, there is a rise in COVID-19 numbers happening right now. I know of one, no, actually I know of two people that within the last, I'm going to say 30 days, they've contracted COVID. One person has never had it. One person has had it at this point three times. Um, so I'm I'm back on edge, like, okay, so do I need to pull my mask back out? Stay away from me. Yeah, I think we're it's back hard. on edge again. And it's, The world it's is trying hard. to go towards normal and, and we can't really fully get there. We're kind of stuck in this bind of how do we exist? How do we live? We're no more aware of viruses. We're more aware of our surroundings. We're more aware of the risk that was always there, but now feels more ever present. I think it's hard. I think it's hard. I think that's a great pivot. Uh, well said, doctor, um, to our segment on Dharma Talks. So for the 365ers, as you know, we start these conversations out with a a mini sermon, you can say sermon, but uh, uh, just uh, words of affirmation to set the tone for the conversation. It comes from an Eastern tradition. And considering where we're at now, um, speaking of what we just said about we're holding on to things, this is a season of change. We're getting out of summer, stepping into the fall. People are going back to school. A lot of times in our life, change is the most fearful thing that we can wrap our hand around. And we get stuck in our ways. And you got to understand that there are seasons for a reason. And so when you're stepping into a new season, a lot of behaviors and systems of thought that served you before may not serve you in the future. Um, and so it's good to take a step back and see the bigger picture so that you can move forward with more sustainability and operate effectively. And so for the 365ers, listen, take time to sit back and say, hmm, is this working for me? Or maybe I need to, to dial it a little bit. <laughs> I'm excited to get into this conversation. We got a very heavy, uh, I won't say heavy, but a very um, intellectual conversation, I assume, to come up. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to hop into it, doctor, uh, before we get into anything, um, I just want to know a little bit just about what inspired you to get into this particular field of, um, of, of health. Yeah. 
So for me, it, it's actually, it's interesting you talk about that, that pivot or kind of that need to pivot and change. Because when I came to med school, I was, the last thing I was going to do was be a neurosurgeon. I was like, the brain, psh, the spine, ah, I want to be a cardiologist. Like, I thought that was like the bee's knees, like the best thing possible. And as I got into it, I had this first semester of, um, of, uh, of neuroscience, just learning about the brain. It was like the chief resident of neurosurgery was teaching. It was the head PA. And it was just taught in this way where like everything made sense. Like I'm an engineer by training and by background. And it was like, oh, this organ that seems really scary, really complex, really hard to understand. is just a big circuit. And it was just like very beautiful linear thing that got even more exciting when you realize we don't know a lot about it. Like we're still just kind of crawling around the dark, shining flashlights, trying to learn all this stuff. And I found really good mentors and I found people who kind of got me inspired in it. And then I just kind of kept following that pathway where, you know, the first guy I met was a, a vascular surgeon and I was going to be just like him because vascular is all like fluid dynamics and I'm, I'm a nerd. So it's, it's going to get nerdy. Um, but it's all this like beautiful mathematical modeling of all these types of things. And then when I came to residency, I met this pair of guys, Jonathan Engen and Duca Moncler, who were just amazing, like just great human beings who were oncologists and they took care of cancer patients. And when I rotated with them and then I eventually turned it into like an infolded, you know, two years of fellowship with them, we spent a ton of time just seeing these patients, having these really hard conversations, and it really connected me to them. And it also was very fulfilling in a way because my dad died of cancer shortly before I started med school. And so it felt like the space that I enjoyed existing in because no one really enjoys having the hard conversations, but I enjoyed having that honesty with people. I enjoyed being able to actually give them the news in a way that they could understand and then helping to guide them through that process. And for me, that was really fulfilling, cathartic. And like, I went to work every day, just happy to be there, even though it was all these heavy subjects. And so that's how I kind of got on this kick of finding a niche within a niche because neurosurgical oncology is a very small niche within neurosurgery, but it's, it's, I couldn't be happier. Like I love the people that I work with, love the people I get to take care of. And I love the conversations that we get to have and the, the frankness that comes from it. Honestly, it's, it's beautiful. And I just, I love my job. I love people I get to take care of. I love that so much for you, brother, in so many ways. And um, just speaking to this being a black health 365 black men in that space, I can't imagine a lot are in that space. Um, do you find there's a community of black doctors and, and that has been built? Yeah. So I think that's actually historically, it's been a problem where they're like where we exist, but we're kind of separated from each other. And there's more and more black people entering into the space of neurosurgery. And then even within neurosurgical oncology and within the past couple of years, actually, there's been the founding of the American society for black neurosurgeons. And they're actually in DC in about start of September, they're going to be, uh, we're having our big national meeting, the Congress of neurological surgeons. And on that Sunday, we are having a soiree, like formal evening dinner to like, get everybody together, get all the black neurosurgeons who are going to be at the conference in a room, like sitting there talking with the med students who want to be neurosurgeons and the residents who are nurses and actually really congregating in a meaningful way. And it is, it's, it's a really beautiful organization. That's, you know, we're going to have like a good talk from um, I'm blanking on her name right now, but who uh, the woman who did the entire 1619 project, like she's going to come and give a talk. And so it's, it's, it's really powerful, important group that I think is filling a space that lets Black neurosurgeons connect, uh, kind of share experiences and foster the next generation of black neurosurgeons. So historically, I'd say, yeah, we were probably a little bit disconnected and there weren't enough of us, but I think we're working on that through these kind of self-started initiatives. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For me, I, I studied a lot of neuroscience during a, a, a difficult time period of my life where I was um, dealing with drug abuse and was looking at different killing modalities to change my life, studying meditation and, and, and yoga and I stumbled across some some guys named Richard Davidson, a lot of white guys. Uh, I listened to a lot of Andrew Huberman, but it's it's so beautiful to hear black men stepping into this space and owning it. Not only beautiful to hear it, but also beautiful to see it. And I know when you're working with your different your, your clients and your patients, um, especially those of color, I know there's a sense of like relief um, and a sense of love that comes from like seeing your face when they get to talk to you and 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 have those moments with you because you understand, you know, a lot of, if not all of the, you know, the, the life and the situations that they're going through. So, um, you know, to Britt's point, I just think it's a beautiful thing. Um, and, in a completely like full way. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think that's been a really rewarding part of the job. And especially I spent about a year and a half working in Shreveport, Louisiana, before I took the job at Sloan Kettering. And it's a, it's a, the large population is, you know, black and African-American in that area. And it was always interesting to see the look of relief that you could see in some people or the trust that they had, the hugs that they would give and how they would sometimes just in the conversation or the session just saying, thank you for being here or thank you for, for what you are doing or what you represent. And that, that was meaningful beyond words to me. It was, it was an affirmation of all the hard work, the dedication and kind of the bigger picture of it. Mm, 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 mm. Well, I kind of want to dive into the science and hear the hear the um, the nerdy stuff. Um, <laughs> you specialize um, in spinal tumors and surgery. Um, can we take a preliminary step back and just say the spine as a function of the human body and the central nervous system? Could you speak on that? Yeah. So. What I'd say is that we take that step back is that the spine really serves as a, a stability mechanism. And so you're kind of built where you have a bone, a disc, a bone, a disc, it's kind of shock absorbers and very kind of firm structural support systems that let you stand and load and walk around and jump up and down and not have everything kind of fall apart. Um, and then the other mechanism that the, the bony part of the spine really serves is to protect the spinal cord because inside the bony encasement behind the vertebral body, but inside this nice little ring it forms of kind of 360 degrees of protection is the spinal cord floating in spinal fluid and surrounded by this tough, hard sack of leathery material called the dura. And the reason that protecting the spinal cord is so important is because every signal is communicating down that electric highway from the brain all the way down to the arms and the legs and then right back up. And any interruption in that pathway can be weakness or paralysis in the legs, weakness or paralysis in the arms, both loss of bowel or bladder function. So the spine is a beautiful organ because of how it actually protects the spinal cord. And the spinal cord is very delicate and doesn't like being poked, touched, or perturbed particularly. That's interesting. It's so interesting to have this conversation. I'm a yoga instructor and a mobility coach. And 
I do this training with a lot of my students. If you ever taken a yoga class, you know the cat cow that people yep. do. So in the morning, I do literally standing cat cows. For like, I look look ridiculous, but um, I would do it for like three minutes straight just to create that fluidity and that energy. In that energy, well, I thought you were swag surfing a second. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> jokes always with the jokes, but yeah, no, this. <laughs> Just getting a structural understanding of why the spine is so important, I think is is good to know. And now getting to the conversation of today, the defects that can happen within the human body. Could you explain what is a spinal cancer and maybe the different types of spinal cancer? And different spinal conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of, I think we can parse it out into a couple of different parts. So spine cancer is just like any other kind of cancer where it's cells that are growing abnormally. They're either cells that started off somewhere and made their way there, or some. Or sometimes it's cells that start off in the spine and just grow abnormally in there. But either way, it's things that are growing in a way that they should. So you kind of have the, the spine cancer side of things, and then you also have degenerative problems. We kind of look at the whole spectrum of spine issues um, that are kind of the common one people think about once you enter adulthood. From the degenerative side of it, it's people who have disc herniations and um, kind of fractures, trauma, other types of things that can happen in that setting. And that's, I do some of that, but I mostly do it for people who have cancer and then also have those problems. But if we transition back to the oncology side or the cancer side of it, I break things down into tumors that start in the bone and kind of grow from there or tumors that start elsewhere and make their way to the bone. And the way we call it is kind of primary tumors and kind of secondary or metastatic tumors. And the metastatic tumors really are um, much, much, much more common. You don't see primary tumors as often in terms of that. You can also see some tumors that grow from the spinal cord itself or that kind of grow from the lining of the spinal cord. But the bulk of what I see and deal with are metastatic tumors or tumors that kind of start elsewhere. So like breast cancer that makes its way to the spine and grows. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You just said that metastatic is the most common. Is there any reason why that is the most common? Is it just because, you know, of other common cancers? It's just because cancer is so common, right? And so... So many people have cancer that it just the numbers trump trump whatever else could possibly be happening. It's why we see most of the stuff that we deal with at Sloan Kettering is metastatic. We see all the other things, too. But it's just because cancer is so prevalent across the world and across the United States, we see more of a volume of that. Um, Specifically talking on cancers in the spine, um, you see the growth, the uncontrollable growth of cells. What, how does that affect the body? Do people get low back pain from that? Like, how would someone's, oh, I got low back pain. I go to the doctor. Damn, I got cancer. Is it like, <laughs> like what is it? <laughs> no, like that, that's a great question because that really is at the crux of it is how do you know if you need to get checked? And for the most part, most of the people who are going to present with metastases to the spine already know they have 
cancer from another site, be it breast, be it lung, be it prostate. And it's just, they suddenly, you know, in the setting of already having a cancer diagnosis, start having worsening back pain. Um, but that being said, there are people who present with kind of their back pain as a predominant symptom that leads to a workup, and then you find that. Um, and what I will typically tell people when I'm talking about this is it's really a pain when, it, when you don't have a cancer diagnosis, you're looking for a pain that's persistent in a way that doesn't get better. That's just kind of either steadily there, not getting better with kind of conservative things like Tylenol, Advil, massage, heat, physical therapy. That's really just not getting better despite that. Um, or if you already have a cancer diagnosis, it can also be, you know, I'm having new onset back pain that you got to have a higher suspicion in that setting. But it's something where your body's just telling you it's not getting better, it's not healing the proper way, I'm not getting improvement. And most of the time when you have that set of symptoms and you've been seeing someone for it, that doctor who you're seeing, either your primary care, your family doc, or even if it's a specialist, they'll start looking and getting an image, either an x-ray or an MRI, and that oftentimes leads to the diagnosis. The big thing I always tell people about in terms of just basic symptoms is that, you know, a lot of times tumor pain that's not really the structural pain, but just the inflammatory pain, people will so, you know, it wakes you up in the middle of the night, and when I wake up, it's kind of, it's it's there all over the night, it's bad in the morning, but as the day goes on, it gets better. That's part of what we see for kind of biological pain, really the tumor swelling and sometimes retracting based on how the human body produces natural steroids. And there's other people where the pain that they get is really related to the fact that the tumor is eating away at the bone and kind of eroding stability where, you know, they lay flat, pain's better. They stand up, it's excruciating, um, or there are certain positional aspects to it. And really the hard part is that those same symptoms can look like some of the degenerative symptoms that happen as well. And I think a big thing is if you have back pain that's concerning, see your doctor, like talk about it um, and ask, you know, tell them what your symptoms are, let them try conservative things. And if it's still not getting better, they'll get pictures, they'll get imaging. And ultimately most people wind up with an MRI that gives us an idea as to why are you having that kind of pain. Well, quickly before we go to the more of the degenerative things, going back to cancer, Reminders for 365ers who maybe haven't heard some other episodes about cancer. How does one detect cancer? Like when you go to the doctor, do you get blood work? It's it's not an MR. Like how does the how is that determined? How's that diagnosed? So it's a great question. And the answer is it depends. And it depends on the kind of cancer that you have or that you suspect. There are some cancers like multiple myeloma where there's blood tests that'll show you that you have it. There's other cancers like say breast cancer where mammography or screening examinations are oftentimes how you find it. And so a lot of it depends on the type of cancer that you're dealing with. Or say prostate cancer, you can check you know, a prostate exam on a physical examination, or it can be a PSA or a prostate specific antigen that's really elevated that tells you that you have that. And so a little bit of that depends on kind of what you think may be the actual source of the cancer. And sometimes it's just getting a, you know, a CT scan or an MRI to find out what it is, especially in the case of lung cancers, where you may come in with a cough and you get a chest x-ray and it's like something looks suspicious. And then you get a CT scan that really provides definition as to what you're seeing or, or why something might be happening. To the benefit of 365ers trying to be the best advocates of their own health, it sounds like some of these things that you just said aren't in a general checkup that you do once or twice a year. So some of them aren't, right? but I think a general checkup should elicit some of the symptoms that you're having. So if, depending on your age will dictate whether or not you're getting a, you know, a prostate exam with certain things. Depending on your age will dictate whether or not you're getting a colonoscopy every X number of years based on your risk and everything else. Um, you know, getting breast exams, that should be a routine thing that you're getting regularly and a part of, you know, yearly examination, but also personal self-care. And the same thing applies to, you know, testicular cancer. 
someone may not be giving you a test uh, testicle check every time you go to the doctor, but you should, as a part of your own wellness, be kind of checking that monthly or every so often to make sure that you're not noticing lumps or bumps or other things. Um, but some of the other things like lung cancer, you may have a chronic cough, a productive cough, sputum that's coming out or something along those lines that prompts someone to get a deeper workup. But I think the big thing is, is having that good relationship with a primary care or someone who you can talk to about symptoms so they can help guide you down that route. Because Dr. Google will tell you 50 things that may be wrong with you, but then having someone to help you actually work through what's likely, what's not likely, and talk you through kind of anxieties about those things is really important because as you go through that Dr. Google list, your anxiety will start ramping up as you see all the things it could be, when in actuality, it could just be a common cold or a pneumonia or, you know, anything like that. Is there a particular age range or a particular demographic that you see with uh, spinal cancer than like uh, other age ranges or other demographics? So it depends on the type. And so I'll focus some on metastatic. I think that's where most people are going to really present and have as an issue. And that's typically older, older age groups, because that's the age group where most people have cancer, say 50s, 60s, 70s. And so a lot of the people that we're seeing are in that age range. What about, um, I guess, like racial background? Is it more black, more white, Hispanics, or is it just across the board? It's across the board. Where you see the racial differences sometimes is in the rates of certain types of cancer that they get. So if a certain race has, say, higher rates of prostate cancer, then that prostate cancer makes its way to the bone. So I'm going to see more of that group of people with the problem. But I'd say I see a fairly mixed population in terms of white, black, Hispanic, and kind of across the board. Now, if you're, if you're a 365er and you're in this older population, and let's say you are diagnosed with another form of cancer, um, should I immediately say like, hey, I need to go ahead and get checked or go ahead and be on the lookout for spinal cancer as well? If I have another cancer, does it mean that I am going to get spinal cancer? So no, it doesn't mean that you're going to get it. But I, what I do think it means is that you need to listen to your body. So if you look at kind of the data or some of the numbers that are out there, the the numbers will say anywhere from 10 to 40% of people who have kind of a, a, a primary cancer will wind up with a metastasis to their spine at some point during their disease course. And that number is kind of big, a big range. And it's because not everybody becomes symptomatic. Sometimes they're found in autopsy because no one ever really knew and checked. Um, but what I'd say is that if you have a new cancer diagnosis, it doesn't mean you have to automatically check your back or you're going to you're going to definitively get spine cancer, but I think it does mean you got to listen to your body. And so if you notice that you're having pains that aren't going away or things that feel different, it's talking with your oncologist about, hey, can we check? Can we look into this because this is happening to me? And really being an advocate, which I think also gets the idea of you really need to have a relationship with your oncologist where you feel like you can talk with them, you trust them, and they listen to your concerns as well. I don't know if this is a good question or not, but is there anything that I could do to prevent myself from getting spinal cancer? Or is it just one of those things where, you know, it may happen, it may not happen? I mean, I think the biggest thing anyone can do is to, once you have cancer, to really seek treatment and adhere to treatment. Because the biggest thing is people get spine cancer really later in their disease course or when the disease is raging out of control. And so I think having that good relationship with an oncologist and having good treatment options and following up with them really is the best way to try to prevent it from happening by trying to keep the actual primary site of disease under the best control that you can. I wanted to know why some people who get COVID-19 get it so bad. 
I found out it may be because they have a high risk factor, such as heart disease, diabetes, being overweight, smoking, and asthma. Even if symptoms feel mild, these factors can increase your risk of COVID-19 turning severe. So if you're at high risk and test positive, there are things you can do, like asking your healthcare provider if an authorized oral treatment is right for you. Learn about an option at treatcovid19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. When it comes to treatment of, um, you know, someone with spinal cancer, what are some surgical and non-surgical treatments? Yeah, no, great question. It's actually a really exciting time to be in spinal oncology because historically a lot of the chemotherapy and kind of medication management has not been able to reach parts of the spine. So like it can reach the bony part, but the space just outside the bone called the epidural space, which is where when the tumor reaches that, it starts pushing on the spinal cord. It's historically been really hard for the drugs to make it there and actually shrink the tumor. But some of the drugs are actually now able to do that. And so we're actually entering this exciting time where the surgical indication may start getting smaller and smaller, which makes me happy because nobody wants to have surgery. If you can avoid it, that's the whole goal at Sloan is to see, can we actually figure out the, le- the least invasive way of treating your cancer and keeping you upright, walking, happy and healthy. And to that end, the thing that I love most about my job is it's not just me sitting in a silo, it's me plus a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a physiatrist, all trying to figure out how do we, what's the best option for you? And sometimes that's stay on the medications, we'll watch the disease and see what happens. And people do respond that way. Um, other times it winds up being treating people with radiation saying, look, you know, your spinal cord looks like it's relatively safe. We can treat you with radiation. And 90% of the time, we're going to get really good control based on what this looks like. And then there's another subset of people where the tumor is really pushing on the spinal cord and we're worried about the ability to kind of keep walking or that if too much compression happens, can we, you know, you might lose that ability or lose bowel and bladder. And that's when I think surgery fits in. And really surgery is just going through the back, kind of making space around the spinal cord and stripping away some of that tumor so that we, then we can do radiation treatment. And it's always that combination because the radiation is so effective when we can actually make a good target and kind of spare the spinal cord some of that radiation treatment dose. Can a physical injury cause spinal cancer? No, not typically. Um, it, I would say it's not going to. More physical injuries can lead to long-term pain. They can lead to issues with how your spine is aligned, depending on what the injury is. Is it a fracture versus is it just something where you sprained a muscle and are having back pain? But it's typically two separate things. I think of spine cancer as being really abnormally dividing cells that are just kind of raging out of control. And and really, with a physical injury, it doesn't really stimulate the cells to do that. Can spinal cancer or any of these things that degenerate the spine affect the whole neurological system? Oh, 100%. Uh, in terms of, like, can my spine make, now I can't move my arm the right way? Or maybe even mentally, something affects my brain. Yeah. And that's what, what I, I want to know. Does it affect, does it have an effect on the brain? So, so no, so the spine portion won't, um, it, having essentially a metastasis of the spine that's pushing on the spinal cord won't impact the brain. They're kind of, they work uh, kind of in unison together, but things that impact the spine don't impact the brain the same way, but things that impact the brain can impact the spine. I like to think of it as a highway where information is starting in the brain and those cars are traveling down from the brain through the brainstem into the spinal cord and sending out their signals. And then they take information back in and send that up, some sensory information and other things. And so the brain itself is kind of protected from any issues that are impacting the spine, but the spine can be impacted by the brain. The brain kind of is the, the, 
the head boss, so to speak. Um, but that being said, yeah, if you have spinal metastases and they're compressing the spinal cord, you can lose the ability to use your arms, use your legs, bowel and bladder type issues, depending on where it's located. And if the tumors kind of leave the spine area and go towards a nerve directly, say like the nerves that you have up here in the, uh, in the kind of the shoulder area where we have what's called the brachial plexus, that can also impact your ability to move just one arm. Um, and so it's, I think that's why I take it so seriously when people have spine disease of trying to get them the treatment quickly, because there's a lot at risk for that. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So if I have spine disease and let's say I lose uh, functioning in one arm, is it possible to get that functioning back once the cancer goes away? Or is it once I lose that function, it's completely gone? So it depends. It depends on how rapidly that loss of function happened, why it happened. Was it something where the nerves were just completely destroyed and compressed? Or is it something where they had a temporary injury that is you can rehabilitate? But what I always tell my patients is that the goal of surgery in my mind is always to stop you from getting worse, but I hope that you get better from it. So I think early intervention is always the best thing. Once you start losing function, you're kind of racing against that clock of how quickly can we try to improve things. And sometimes it doesn't get better. Um, but I think with kind of staying on top of things, having really good multidisciplinary care and getting the treatment quickly, you can hopefully avoid the bad thing where you get the injury that we can't get function back from. Is there a normal, I guess, recovery time? So like you said, if I catch it quickly, get into treatment, um, is there like a, hey, this could be, you know, 365 days, this could be two, three years. Is there like a typical recovery time or does it depend on every person? It Everyone's a little bit different, but what I will typically say is for most of the things that we do that relate to spine tumors where we're kind of needing to take away some pieces of the bone to kind of make space and remove tumor and maybe put in rods and screws to stabilize the back. I tell people that it's kind of like a three month recovery where the first two weeks, you're just kind of slowly getting over things and you're moving a little bit more, but you're stiff and you know it. And then the next two to six weeks, you're really pushing yourself, doing some light physical therapy, doing more. And then that six to 12 week mark, that's really where I think people start hitting their stride and feeling better. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we've really kind of as a field pushed doing minimally invasive things, smaller incisions, figuring out how do we do the least invasive thing, but get the biggest bang for our buck out of doing it. Because when it comes to cancer, like I'm fully aware that when I'm trying to do these surgeries to either decompress the spinal cord or palliate or kind of lessen a symptom that someone has, I still have to get them back onto their systemic therapy or their medications so that they can keep the entire wildfire that is their cancer under control. And I think as a field, we've done a really good job of trying to make ourselves do these minimal things to really shorten the recovery. And so I, I have to always tell people about the recovery in terms of like a three month recovery. And then you're still feeling it and progressing over the you know, course of the next three months, six months after that. But it's it's nowhere near that kind of short term three month recovery that first three months, I think. 
I thought it was going to be a lot longer. So to hear, you know, like three months, I'm like, okay, that's actually terribly not bad. If I'm diagnosed with spinal cancer, I go through the recovery process and um, I'm cancer free. Can it come back? So what I would say is, is it, it always can come back because in a lot of ways, once people are seeing me, you're kind of stage four cancer. You're, you're widely spread. You've reached the spine. You've reached kind of the central nervous system. And so even if you kind of get into a remission state where your cancer appears to be at bay, you still need to do kind of serial monitoring other stuff. You can be a long-term survivor, but there's always that heightened level of just listening to your body, keeping your checkup and follow-up appointments and seeing kind of what you get to. Um, I think once you reach kind of the brain or the spine, it's just a different game in terms of how you monitor, how you surveil versus when you have people where say it's breast cancer, and you're just localized to just the breast. There's a different kind of sense of what cure really means in that sense. This has been um, an entire college lecture, <laughs> a volume of information, and I've learned a lot and extremely appreciative, Doctor. I have a fun question before we end it out. You being a spinal health specialist, how do you feel about the chiropractor? So, so I, I so what I will say is I think chiropractors do help a lot of people. Um, and I think that they do a really good job of helping people. The, the, the area where I always get a little bit skittish and I kind of pull back is neck manipulations or kind of the neck cracking. Um, and the reason for that is purely because in residency and even now I've seen a decent number of people where with the kind of aggressive neck manipulations that are kind of those like snapping one way or the other, um, you can injure the vertebral artery. You've got this artery that runs in the back part of your neck. Um, uh, and and you, when you injure it, you can cause strokes because of it. And really fast movements to the to the neck can do that. And so that's always my one copy is I think chiropractors do a great job. I think they help a lot of people. And while it's not the most common thing to see, when I was in residency, I probably saw about one a year that would come to the ER who was a 20 or 30 something year old woman, sometimes a man um, who had just had neck manipulation and started having kind of strange symptoms, like stroke-like symptoms. And you get the imaging, you can see that there's an injury to that artery. And so that's always my one comment. I tell patients when they ask me, can I go to the chiropractor? I say, sure, but just please avoid the neck manipulation because that's that's my fear as a neurosurgeon. <laughs> okay, on the same line, I got to ask this. I'm being completely transparent. What about like me cracking my own neck? I mean, I feel like that's probably a better thing than someone else cracking on your neck kind of aggressively. Um, I mean, I'd want to see how you're cracking or how aggressively you are. Till oh, that's fine. That 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 looks fine. That is that. I mean, that looks much much less aggressive. So I think you're going to be okay from that one. But I'm talking more the the, the really sharp snap because it's just your neck doesn't want to do that and it just it can injure that artery and it's then it's kind of medication management typically. But if you get the stroke from it, it can be devastating. But I think you're going to be okay with the way that you're showing me your neck cracking. <laughs> I, I probably a, shouldn't do that, but I do it all the time. I'm like, <laughs> likewise, I've been doing it on this on this podcast. I'm, I'm going to big cracking. That's cracking. why when you were like uh, not the neck, I was like, hold on, wait a minute. No, what I mean. I think what you guys are doing is totally fine because you're not doing a kind of aggressive big moves. You're kind of leaning into like your musculature and you're kind of, you might be getting that crack, but you're not kind of snapping the neck in a way where you were. It's almost like, I think of that as like a car injury where you kind of get that kind of rapid twist or that rapid torque. And that's what I don't want people to have. And that's why I say just if someone, like if you're manipulating your own neck, you're not going to push yourself that far. But if someone else is, I think it's easier to actually manipulate that way. There it is. 
uh, very measured response. 365ers, I asked him, um, I'm not trying to get you in con- um, in conflict with any chiropractors out there in the world. Uh, so very measured response for sure. Well, doctor, before we close things out, we'd like to do this thing called What's Your 365? What advice would you specifically give to the Black community as a healthcare provider in your field, in your experience? Something just people can take away, some short saying that the 365ers can take with them. I would say you are your own best advocate, but you need to make sure that the person who you're trusting with your care is also someone that you trust and that is your advocate. Um, I think that's the short of it because I think a lot of what I see in terms of like the, the the sad stories are people who feel like they weren't listened to, they weren't heard, and they they felt like something was wrong. They knew that something was wrong, and and I think the biggest takeaway that I have is you need to you need to feel like you're connected to the person that's taken care of you. And if you don't feel like you're connected, it's okay, find another person. But you need someone who you feel like hears you because you know your body, you know when something feels off. And even if you know there really isn't anything there, you need someone who still listens to you and helps you go down that pathway of working it up and takes you seriously because more often than not, I feel like people really are in touch with what's wrong, what's off, and you need someone who's gonna listen to you and walk that journey with you. Well said, Dr. Newman. If people want to reach out to you, whether it's social media, uh, email, um, where can people find you at? So I am my my uh, my Twitter handle is very unoriginal, but it's fine off doc. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what I do, but it's my professional Twitter. Um, and then they can reach out like the easiest way is probably through the actual Sloan Kettering webpage. So if someone's trying to reach out and get connected for, you know, a patient evaluation to be seen. If you go through the Sloan Kettering webpage, there's a whole new patient thing where you can put in your information and then they can kind of funnel you my way. And we're pretty good about getting people in within, you know, two days or so, uh, depending on clinic days or even just doing virtual visits, trying to talk through stuff, depending on what's happening. But that's a good way of even just getting into the system as a whole, depending on what you actually need. Good to know. Thank you so much, Dr. Newman, for uh, sitting down with us and talking to us today. This was a very enlightening conversation. I can honestly say I did not know a whole bunch about spinal conditions or cancer. So, um, you know, I know I took a lot away from it. I think, you know, Britt will say the same thing and the 365ers are probably thinking the same thing. So thank you because a lot of great information was shared today. No, thanks for having me. And thanks for letting me nerd out a little bit on something that I (laughs) love and hold dear. (laughs) It was well received. Yes, we absolutely loved it. 365ers, if you have anything that you want us to cover, you always know you can find us on social media at Black Health 365. Again, that's Black Health 365. You can find me on social media at Love Jackie Page. You can find me at ProfitFitness.life. Remember, 365ers, with every season that you step into, it is your responsibility to be an advocate for your health. Peace, love, and namaste. Black Health 365 is an Urban One and Reach Media production hosted by Jackie Page and Britt Daniels, created by Samuel Tatum and Laura Lopez, executive produced by Brittany Jackson and Kadisha Campbell, editing and production, Jahi Whitehead, sales and corporate sponsorship, Patty Johnson. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.